0: The topic we're talking about is class privilege. What is class privilege?
1: Let's start with what is class and then we can build up to what is class privilege. So one way that class is often approached, at least in the big sociological studies and so on, has a lot to do with occupation, sometimes only occupation, sometimes other features as well, such as income, the kind of work you do, whether you're full-time and so on. So for example, in something like the Office for National Statistics classification, people who do manual or routine work will tend to be grouped into a different sort of class tier than people who are, let's say, judges or doctors or lawyers.
0: But a judge might say, well, I'm a judge now and so you could call me middle class, but actually I was brought up in a very underprivileged background and I struggled to make my way here. I'm not middle class, I'm working class.
1: Yes, so this is where the complication comes in. It seems to be that a lot of the ways that sociologists and others approach the question of class goes off what your job happens to be now. But actually, there's a good reason to look more deeply into how class is determined over generations. And so one really useful way to think about it is to think that a person's class group is actually determined by the occupation or income of their parents. And this introduces an interesting kind of moral element to the question of class, which takes us towards this question of what class privilege is.
0: And the empirical evidence is that if I'm from a middle class family, the chances are my parents will also have been from a middle class family.
1: Yes, that's right. A fairly recent study done on this showed that there's between 0.3 and a 0.7 chance of ending up in a roughly similar income bracket to your parents. So the study was looking at a father's income at the time their child was born and then the child's income at age 30. Up to a 0.7 chance is a really strong correlation.
0: Britain is known obviously as a class-ridden society. This might sound an odd question, but what's wrong with a society based on class?
1: I suppose the main thing that's wrong is that we have an idea of a good society in which anyone is able to sort of develop their talents, pursue a range of opportunities and then end up in meaningful work and with a life worth living, let's say. And these kinds of distortions to social mobility or equality of opportunity, they compromise that vision. We just tend to think it shouldn't be the case that a person is much less likely to have a decent job or earn a decent living just because of what their father happened to be doing at the time that they were born.
0: That seems very unfair, but it seems almost as unfair to have a society that might be based on meritocratic grounds so that the people who get to the top are not those who are born into privilege but those who are born with innate talent?
1: Yeah, so this is a tricky question I think. My sort of intuition on this question is that a society where the kind of inequality we see in the UK was arranged according to intelligence rather than what your parents' job happened to be would be quite a bit better. So for one thing, we tend to be interested in how hard people have worked developing their skills or making expenditures of effort. So if it wasn't merely that there was inequality on the basis of brute capacity for intelligence, but rather that people had really worked hard to develop that capacity into something great, I think that would be less objectionable. And I also think we wouldn't want to stop there, so even if we still had to have some equality and it had to track some merit-style feature of persons, we'd want to say that there should be a strong social minimum and that there might even need to be limits to how big the gap is between the worst-off and the better-off.
0: And to emphasise, you're making a probabilistic claim. You're not saying that everybody who ends up privileged inevitably got there because they were born into privilege, you're saying the chances are that the two are connected?
1: Yes, certainly. As I said earlier, the figure was something like between 0.3 and 0.7. And what that tells us is that in every 100, there's going to be 30 or so people at the least, and maybe many more, who actually managed to move significantly between class groups or whose position was in fact not strongly determined by what their parents' incomes were at the time they were born.
0: Suppose a comfortable middle-class person does well in life says to you, well, it wasn't my fault that I was raised in this background. I'm not to blame. I can see that I benefited, but I'm not culpable.
1: Yeah. So in the project where I've been working on this, I'm trying to take that intuition very seriously, actually. I think there's a strong temptation, I suppose, for people to say, well, look at all the stuff that you have that other people don't have. Surely you're somehow complicit in that at the very least. I mean, you haven't walked away from the advantages. Actually, I think it can be extremely costly to walk away from those kinds of advantages in a way that might mean asking too much. And I think that there are lots of people who have this sort of arbitrary advantage, especially in the UK, who haven't gone to any lengths to secure it for themselves and in fact might really wish that their society was quite different. You might think that's a charitable view of what most people in the middle class are like, but that's the view I'm trying to take in the paper, that there's not active culpable claiming of advantage, that these people aren't guilty for excluding others from advantage, but nonetheless they have it on somewhat morally arbitrary grounds and that can be enough to say that there are obligations there.
0: What about if they give their kids violin lessons or teach them French or send them to private school? That's perpetuating their advantage, isn't it?
1: Uh, Yeah, actually, I think that is perpetuating their advantage, especially the private school issue. But this is now quite interesting again when it comes to culpability because it's a case of other people acting on my behalf, perhaps even when I'm just a child, in order to further my interests. So that's still not enough to make me culpable, although some moral philosophers think that when someone else acts to further my interests, I can then have obligations as a result of that as well.
0: Let's grant you your premise that there are many people out there who are privileged and not culpable. Does that mean they're free of obligation to do something about their position in society?
1: So when we're culpable in others' harms or suffering, I think we have very strong obligations toward them. But I don't think that's the only way we can come to have obligations. And this recent discussion about the obligations of beneficiaries of injustice is where I'm taking my inspiration from in this project. The thought there is that you can be entirely uninvolved in the causation of someone else's harm or suffering or bad position, and nonetheless, in virtue of the fact that you benefit from it, or you do really well as a result of that situation, you can still have obligations. So these are non-culpable. They might be weaker than the kinds of obligations you'd have if you'd been causally involved or you'd intended the harm, but they're obligations nonetheless.
0: They're obligations on account of the fact that I've benefited. And what kind of obligations are they?
1: So my proposal is that the class privileged have obligations to take on a certain amount of cost and that they have to take on that cost in a way that's aimed at undoing the source of this arbitrary advantage and disadvantage that exists in the UK. And it's a pluralist proposal in the sense that they can do that in a number of ways. I make some suggestions about what those ways are, but actually people can think for themselves about the ways that they can target this kind of unfair social inequality.
0: An obvious way for me to do it would be to think, well, I'm £20,000 better off than I would be had I not had my wonderful, happy middle class background. I should give £20,000 a year away.
1: Yeah, so I like the part of that proposal <laughs> that suggests that you think seriously about the calculations. So how much better off are you in this really unjust or unequal society than you would be if everyone had an equal chance at the great jobs and the good incomes and the social networks and so on. So I think it's really important to ask yourself that question. Now, whether you should just throw your money at something is is another part of that question. So I think... First of all, it's important that you target the source. So it could turn out that just merely giving money to some particular charity or other wouldn't help things. So I think we need to think carefully about what are the kinds of things that will start undermining this arbitrary advantage and disadvantage. And that might even just start with us and our social networks. So it might be that the most important thing I can do among my middle-class friends is start calling out classist comments, start getting people to think more about their undeserved advantage and other people's undeserved disadvantage. So I tend to favour taking on cost in a way that's actually a bit more looking towards social and political actions.
0: I can imagine many people listening to this thinking, well, that's all very utopian, but actually my principal obligations are not to people on the other side of town or people in another town, but to people in my house, namely my children.
1: Yeah, so I'd like to respond to both parts of that question, actually. So one is on the utopianism, which is just to say I was trying my best to be very non utopian in this project in the sense that I think that there are people who would want to say like down with class altogether. Right. And I'm not saying that necessarily in this paper. I'm just trying to find ways for the various positions that make for class differences between people to be distributed on fairer grounds. And now, on the point about partiality or having the strongest obligations to our own, our family, or maybe even our communities, and so on, I think that's a reasonable intuition. There's definitely room for disagreement. So, some people think our obligations to sort of our global justice obligations are equally strong. But I think even if you have the partiality intuition that you owe the most at home, and then maybe to community, and then maybe to nation. I still think when you get to nation, this class issue is one of the most important issues and one of the most important causes of arbitrary inequality for some. So that's a reason to take these obligations very seriously.
0: Holly Lawford-Smith, thank you very much.
1: Thank you.